You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Bettina Apthecker is professor of feminist studies at the University of California at Santa Cruz. Her book is Intimate Politics, How I Grew Up Red, Fought for Free Speech, and Became a Feminist Rebel. Megan Seeley is a third-wave feminist and activist. She was the youngest ever elected president of California National Organization of Women. Her new book is A Fight Like a Girl, How to Be a Fearless Feminist. Thank you for joining me, ladies. We're very happy to be here. Absolutely. Thank you. Uh, I'd like each of you, uh, Bettina first, and then Megan, to talk about the F word. <laughs> Bettina, tell me well, what feminism is to you. I just got an email from a colleague because my email address has F in it. It's Bettina F. And she wanted to know what the F stood for, <laughs> no doubt thinking that it had some feminist connotation. And actually, it is really my mother's first name, Faye, <laughs> which is my middle name. <laughs> and I had to really disappoint her. But <laughs> so for me, the F word... Uh, feminist um, is really about a centuries-long struggle for women's equality with men. That's a very succinct definition. Megan? Yeah, I can I can't top that one. Um, F word is one of my favorite topics, certainly. So, um, you know, I think for me, in addition to what Bettina is saying, feminism is really about um, claiming who you are and being proud of the history that we come from as women and standing up and finding our voices and using our voice and um, just kind of overall self-determination for women. Now, each of you has written uh, rather different types of books. Bettina, yours is a memoir about growing up as a, a communist, which is a, a whole interesting kettle of fish in itself, and you became a feminist, a feminist leader. Uh, Megan, yours is a how-to book, uh, essentially, and I really like that idea of a, of a how-to book. Could you tell me why each of you, Bettina first, and then Megan, tell me why you decided to write that kind of book to talk about feminism? Yes, when you said the word communist, I was going to say that's the C word. <laughs> <laughs> That's how it used to be in the 1950s when I was growing up. Um, I wrote Intimate Politics um, for any number of reasons, but succinctly, the primary reason was to be able to hand on to a younger generation an understanding of political struggle. I agree very much with Megan's idea about women's self-determination. And um, to show through my own life experience the intertwining of race, class, gender, and sexuality, and the struggle to come become a whole person, which for me was an arduous and difficult journey, as it is for many women. And so I'd say that that was, <clears throat> I wanted to hand on that collective feminist vision that I learned so that a, another generation, generations down the line, long after I'm gone, would have that history. Megan, tell me. Well, I have the great privilege of benefiting from the work and the history of people like Bettina and um, had the opportunity to grow up in a time where feminism was um, 
an option readily known that I've enjoyed the rights that women before me have fought for. And so I wrote Fight Like a Girl because I, I too wanted to share through my own experience how to get active, how to live a political life, to look at um, taking activism in all, or taking action rather in all its many different forms, and also to, to um, explore and debunk a lot of the myths around feminism and that the majority of this country, the vast majority of this country are feminist by tenant and um, to, to look at what that means in our lives and how to embrace that proudly and to, to take that into action in our lives. Bettina, I want to take this back to you because I want to ask you about communism. I think there are many people who might even think it's illegal to be a communist in this country, and the, the concept of a, of a communist party might just seem really bizarre to them. Could you talk a little bit about your personal history with the communist party? Mm -hmm. um, well, I was born into a communist family. My father, Herbert Aptaker, was a very prominent member of the U.S. Communist Party. And uh, my mother, Faye Aptaker, was also uh, very much involved in communist politics. Um, she was 10 years older than my father, so she actually joined the party 10 years before he did in 1929. And he joined in 1939. Uh, the Communist Party was founded in the United States in 1921. Uh, it still exists. I think it's a rel relatively small group of people now. It has a long and rather inspired history of uh, struggles, especially against racism in the South, tremendous heroism on the part of, uh, of black and white communists working together in the South in the 20s and 30s, uh, well before the uh, civil rights movement of the 1960s and helped to lay the foundation for it. And also great heroism of communists in the labor organizing when labor unions were illegal uh, before the 1930s and well after, um, especially many of the sit-down strikes that took place in the 1930s, communists were very involved in those struggles for union recognition. And uh, <clears throat> the Communist Party was um, in a sort of semi-legal state for a long time when um, various acts of Congress were passed in the 1940s and early 1950s. So you could be a member of the Communist Party, but you had to register as a communist with the government. And if you registered as a communist with the government, then you were saying that um, you were a foreign agent. So nobody, of course, would register because it was illegal to be a foreign agent. So that's what I mean by a semi-legal status. Um, those uh, laws were overturned by the United States Supreme Court in 1965 as a result of lawsuits filed by the Communist Party. And now it's perfectly legal uh, to be a member of the party. And um, as I said, so, some people remain members of the Communist Party. It split very badly in the early 90s with the fall of socialism and uh, the debates that took place about... Um, what, what that meant and what it meant for communist uh, existence in the capitalist world. So I think there, let me just say that I think there are many tens of thousands of people that pass through the Communist Party. I know this um, because of people I've encountered who still very much deeply believe in socialism of some kind and um, certainly have not adopted capitalism as the answer to anything uh, or imperialism. Uh, but there isn't really a political organ or organization now that's, um, that's large, that speaks to those feelings. 
One thing that I thought was interesting, a comment you made in your book, was that communism in your childhood, it permeated every part of your life. And that must have made you kind of an odd child and made your childhood kind of odd. <laughs> yes, uh, it did permeate uh, every aspect of my life. Um, and s some of that was very good, very positive. Um, for example, some of the great heroines and heroes of the United States, Paul Robeson, for example, W.E.B. Du Bois as another example, Shirley Graham Du Bois, um, Bea Richards, who some people may not realize who she is. She was a great actress. Um, Mary, <coughs> um, uh, I was going to say William L. Patterson, uh, Paul, I said Paul Robeson already. These were, and Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, that's who I was thinking about. These were people who populated my childhood, and they are legendary figures in American history. And um, some of those names will mean some, something to people who are listening now. And it was a great honor to know those people. And um, so there's a way in which the permeation was wonderful, and a way in which it um, also, because of the intensity of the McCarthy period and the repression that we were in, and the Stalin revelations and so forth, was also a source of great conflict and constriction in my life. So both things have to be reconciled. Now, Megan, we've been talking about a little bit about history with Bettina, and one of the things I thought you did really interestingly in your book was talk about the waves of feminism, and you even described yourself as a third-wave feminist. Mm -hmm. So could you tell us what the waves of feminism are and how they map in, into history? Sure. Um, just in a real quick nutshell, the first wave of the feminist movement is considered the suffrage movement and the fight for the right to vote um, in this country. It was in the late 1800s to early 1900s. The second wave we can classify as personal politics. Um, it's the feminism that most people know about. It started kind of gaining momentum primarily in the 60s, still very relevant. It's very active today. Um, took on things like the ERA, abortion rights, um, pay equity issues, sexual harassment, and so forth. The third wave I define as figuratively or literally the children of the second wave. So either we were, as Rebecca Walker says, movement babies where we were carted from meeting to meeting on the backs of our mothers, or we just grew up at a time having benefited from the work of the second wave, um, which affects how we we view our lives and what our, our opportunities are today. I should say, too, that there's there's quite a bit of debate about waves, particularly around the third wave, whether or not the third wave really exists. Do we need a third wave? Um, and it's been a bit of a debate, but for people like myself and many others, claiming third wave feminism is an identity within the movement. It's a placement within the movement, um, which means quite a bit to, to many of us. Now, both of you deal with the, in your books, deal with the personal and the political in a rather different way. Uh, Bettina, I would characterize as, as viewing things from the ground up, and Megan, you're talking about organizing things more from the top down. B Bettina, tell me a little bit about that, the, the personal and the political in your life, how, how those two interplayed and how they led you from uh, communism and the Angela Davis trials and into becoming a feminist lecturer in Santa Cruz. Oh, the first thing I'd say <clears throat> is um, one of the great liberating factors for me in my life was discovering the feminist slogan in the second wave that Megan was describing, that the personal is political, and the other way of saying it is the political is also personal. It was a different way of thinking about political movements, 
and the extent to which they're populated by real people who have real issues and problems in their lives. Communist movement that I was part of never addressed personal issues, so-called personal issues. They defined certain areas as being personal issues. So sexual violence, for example, domestic violence, <clears throat> sexual abuse of children, etc., were considered, and abortion, I should add abortion, were considered personal issues. And so the party didn't really have a political view on those issues. Also sexuality, like being a lesbian, for example, or being gay. Um, so when I came into the feminist movement, this was a place where I could begin to articulate so many things that had happened to me in terms of sexual violence uh, and in terms of child sexual abuse that I had once seen as personal issues but could now see as political issues as having to do with power relationships that existed in families that mirrored the power relationships between women and men that exist in the larger society. And that was a great liberating factor for me. I don't see a break in my life. For me, it's a continuity. Defending Angela Davis, to me, was as much a feminist issue as it was a communist issue. Um, so I don't see that, you know, big separation. But, um, but it definitely was a very liberating thing for me to see the way the personal and the political intertwined. Megan? Well, I think this is a great example of the generational element to Bettina and I, and that I had the privilege of growing up with the consciousness that the political is personal and the personal is political. And so for me, that has, that has always been that way um, in the way that I look at my life and, and so that I live my life very politically. And so for me, um, not only, as you said, top down, but bottom up, and that I think I'm very grassroots in a lot of ways um, in the activism that I do. Not only have I been a part of larger organizations, but I also think, that activism is the daily things that you do, the conversations that you have with your partner about childcare, the places that you choose to shop or not shop, and and the feedback that you give those shop owners. Um, you know the the issues that I get involved with, up to you know being involved in politics and voting and working in organizations, all the way up to um, planning marches in Washington. I think the whole spectrum is activism, and for me how I live my life. I don't know, I'm not quite sure how not to live politically, that every decision that I make is with that consciousness. One, one thing that you do very well, Megan, is lists. <laughs> yeah. I, I love the lists in, in your book. <laughs> and and, and, and their lists, <laughs> the lists are all about making a difference. And, and I think one of the things, one of your, you have a, I guess kind of four, four major kind of subgroups of way of making a difference. You can talk to a friend or talk to elected officials. You could write to papers, write to those officials. You can host talks and, and consciousness raising sessions and meetings and, and community meetings. And you can organize rallies and meetings and, and, and protests. Could you talk about the, the these just going out there and, and making a difference and what each of us can do, you know, on a daily basis uh, and maybe on a weekly basis. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Patina called me um, optimistic earlier today. Yeah, <laughs> and I, I, think I would agree. Yeah. Yes. I think I, so. I, I really do think I am. And I, I, I really believe that people can make a difference. And I think that social change in all of its many facets throughout our society have happened because people have believed they could make a difference. And I think the difference um, takes many different shapes and forms and many different sizes. And so the book is organized um, by issue. And at the end of each chapter, that has an issue, there's different 
different levels of activism based on people's um, comfort level and and um, what they're willing to do and what they're interested in doing. And my my experience is that there is no act that is too small, and that um, when we begin to do action in our daily life, even if it's as you're saying, talking to a friend about a political issue that concerns you, or sharing an article that you read in the paper with um, people that you work with, you know, having those conversations, opening up that dialogue. Many people wouldn't define that as activism. I actually think that it is. I think it's about changing a consciousness in our culture. I think it's about um, exploring issues, figuring out where you stand on them, um, addressing them with other people. I think that's some of the most important things that we can do, whether they're people we know personally or people that we just happen to to meet in the grocery store line, for example. Um, I think talking with each other and breaking down that those barriers of separation that we've kind of are artificially established in our culture, um, I think is really important activism. And so I think we can do that on a regular basis. I think we can do it daily. I think we can do it weekly. And, and throughout the book, there are specific examples based on body image or violence against women or um, workplace issues or education or what have you, whatever issue that you're particularly interested. So there's very specific examples in the book. But my overall general intent is for people to begin to look at their lives to see the activism that they're already doing that maybe they're not classifying as such and to empower themselves with the idea that that we do make a difference we make a difference every day and that that difference comes in a lot of different ways and there shouldn't necessarily be a hierarchy just because you're not planning that march in Washington as many people think I have to do that to be an activist that um, we can incorporate activism into our lives every day. Bettina uh, on your half, you your book gives uh, basically a, a, a life of activism, and it started early when you were a child. You you talked about these uh, being in a life with like counterculture luminaries, superstars, essentially historical figures that yet many people don't really know that much about. Could you talk a little bit about? being with these kind of superstars that to you, you as even as a child and a teenager, you knew you were with historical figures, but maybe the people you were going to school with didn't know what the heck was going on. <laughs> well, that's probably true. Um, <clears throat> Dr. Du Bois uh, is very well known now. Uh, in the 50s, he was known very well in the black community. Having been one of the <clears throat> primary founders of the NAACP, everybody knew Du Bois if they were black no matter what class. And tens of thousands of people read The Crisis, which was the organ of the NAACP and which he edited from 1919 until about 1934. So, um, but white people didn't necessarily, you know, and the kids I went to school with didn't necessarily know who he was. Um, I knew he was very famous and I knew he was very important and I knew he was a writer and all of those various things. I loved him as a child because he was so deeply kind to me and so very, very sweet and had such a luminous humor and um, listened to me. I could talk to him, have conversations with him as a person and I really loved that about him. He was very patient with me and he always answered any question I asked him. Paul Robeson is probably pretty well known today. Uh, again, at the time, he was pretty notorious because uh, he was a great singer. Uh, people probably know that about him. He had one of the great voices of the century. He was also a very fine actor. Uh, one of his great roles was playing Othello in, in England to tremendous critical acclaim. 
He spoke 21 languages, which was an extraordinary achievement. He traveled the world as a kind of ambassador of goodwill and peace, <clears throat> especially in Africa, as there were newly <clears throat> emerging liberation movements in Africa in the 50s. Uh, so from that point of view, uh, I think people know of, of those figures more today than they did at the time. Someone like Elizabeth Gurley Flynn is probably a little less known, probably because she was a woman <laughs> and a labor organizer and didn't have quite, uh, you know, maybe not quite the largesse of some of the other figures. Um, my dad was forced to testify before the McCarthy Committee in May of 1953 and uh, I was visiting, a fr this is in the memoir, I was visiting a friend, you know, a child friend at the time. And I, I didn't really have a sense of the danger. I, I just saw my father on television and I got all excited and I started shouting, oh, my daddy's on television. <laughs> and her parents <laughs> shut off the TV and um, very quiet, you know, in silence, just shut it off and uh, told me to leave the house. <clears throat> and... Um, uh, and, and, I, and I couldn't play with this friend anymore at their house. We did, we remained, the two of us remained friends, but mostly at school. And she couldn't come to my house and I couldn't go to her house. And that's because her parents were so frightened. And that happened to a lot of, a lot of children uh, in the time period I was growing up. So there was a, a feeling of isolation and loneliness, which I think in my case was exacerbated by being an only child and the particular combination of things I was dealing with as a child. I'd like to move forward in time <clears throat> to the future, which is where we currently reside. It feels like the, it's supposed to be the present, but it feels like the future to me. I can hardly comprehend much of it. And I'm wondering if each of you would talk about the, the way that your beliefs and your ability to act have changed in the last 10 years. Uh, Megan. Well, I, I think in some ways I have um, fine-tuned my voice and my activism. I write in the book about a experience as a 14-year-old girl um, involved in the United Farm Workers and protesting a great. I was part of the great boycott with Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta, and and uh, have a great moment in my life where I. Um, slam some grapes against the floor to make a point. Um, and there's a little more to that story, but um, but I think that as a young teenager and young girl, I had a lot of um, outrage and frustration that I didn't know what to do with. And um, I was frequently told things like I overwhelmed people and that I was always yelling. And I never really thought I yelled. I just thought I spoke with conviction. But um, I think that over time, I have figured out a way to um, hopefully talk in a way that people are interested in, in a way that they may want to listen. Whereas before, I think maybe shutting me down a little bit because it was so intense. And um, I think I still carry that intensity and I think I still carry that passion. But I think in a lot of ways I have um, learned from other people and I have trained with people and worked with people and been mentored by some phenomenal people in the movement on um, effective ways to use media, effective ways to um, work with people in groups and to plan actions and to to um, introduce new ideas and, and so forth. So I, I hope that over the last 10 years I've been able to, to um, I don't know, perfect or fine-tune my approach to, to activism. Bettina? First, I want to say that Megan gave a guest lecture in my class today, 
and uh, I thought she was marvelous. And uh, <clears throat> I think the students adored her. And um, <clears throat> and I think you were you were passionate, and there was an intensity. There was this optimism, and there was also great care with um, explaining things carefully and fully so that people understood. And uh, I just wanted to say that it was a pleasure to, to listen to you today. As, as for myself, um, <clears throat> of course you mature as you are a political activist and so forth. I've always had the quality of uh, willingness to listen. I've always had that, a willingness to listen, a willingness to negotiate. Uh, <clears throat> even during the free speech movement at Berkeley um, in, the, in 64, I was known as the, the moderate, even though I was the communist. I was the member of the Communist Party, but I was the moderate in the eyes of some of the administrators, like Clark Kerr, who was president of the university, whom I saw shortly before he died some years ago, who said, you know, I was the only one he could talk to. <laughs> so, you know, I've had that quality, which I think basically is a good quality to have. For me, I think the fundamental difference is that in the 60s, we had the feeling that the revolution was upon us. There was an effervescence, an optimism, an enthusiasm, and a passion that if we just pushed a little harder, if we just moved, if people understood the injustices in the society, we could change it. And uh, that's not true. Um, and so the revolution wasn't just around the corner. And the war in Vietnam dragged on for years. And we honed a certain kind of political maturity about uh, politicians and what they represented and who they were and so forth. So I think that um, that's the kind of maturity I've had. <clears throat> it's not It's not that I'm not optimistic or that I don't believe in people or that I don't think organizing is possible. I think and believe all of those things and continue in many different movements today, especially against the war in Iraq and the horrors I see uh, going on in those uh, efforts to so-called combat terrorism and so forth. But um, <clears throat> the other thing I would add to this is that I've developed a, um, a spiritual practice, a very serious uh, spiritual practice in, in Buddhism um, in the last uh, probably 20 years that's influenced a great deal about how I feel about compassion and social change and how one works with people in a way that uh, I think uh, develops a better sense of feeling and community. We've been speaking with Patina Apthecker and Megan Seeley. Thank you for joining me, ladies. You're very welcome, Rick. <laughs> Thanks for having us. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.